All right, we're in, the, again, the book of Genesis, chapter, chapter 12. Uh, we want to read through our text. We're going to go through a few verses in 13. We may even go farther than that, possibly. Uh, but let's read, and again, I'm, I'm, you know me, I'm a stickler for context. So let's do that. And I'm just going to keep this up while we read it, just so you can kind of get a visual of this idea of leaving Ur of the Chaldeans, heading up to Chran, which is in the area of Syria, and then heading down Chatsur to the Shechem, and then heading down from there into the area of Egypt into the Delta Nile. This area here is normally extremely plush, uh, feeding off of the Mediterranean Sea and then heading its way back. And that's where we're going to get today. Uh, we're going to travel, in essence, today roughly about 800 miles to kind of give you an idea. So fasten your seatbelts because we're going to travel an awful lot. Um, so here we go. Again, look at it with me. <clears throat> we'll pick it up, let's say, in verse 5. <coughs> Excuse me. Abram took Sarah and Lot, his brother's wife, and their possessions that they had, gathered the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. And so they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place called Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morech. The Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram, Abram and says, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar, a mitzvah, to the Lord who had appeared to him. So he moved from the, uh, that area there, from the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. Now Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass... When he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a foxy chick. Sorry. <laughs> I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen that when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, This is his wife. And they'll kill me, and they'll let you live. So please say you're my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman and that she was very beautiful. Ladies, how'd you like that in Scripture? You get the one, you get the title of being very beautiful at 65 plus. So you were ordering from the senior menu at places and yet still very beautiful in Scripture. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house and he treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram in and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here's your wife. Take her and go away. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot was with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where the altar had been at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Pray with me one more time, would you please? God, again, I just pray that your word would come alive, that your scripture would have deep, permanent impact with us. And God, in that, that something radical would take place today, that this would be more than an accruing of information, 
This would truly be a radical experience with you, Lord. We're not looking for the shakes and the flakes and the whatever and the quakes, Lord. What we're looking for is something that's a lot less like a breakfast cereal and a whole lot more like a real relationship with you. So God, I just pray today that you would make yourself very, very, very clear and therefore make me transparent that you would truly have your work. And so I want to commit this time to you, Lord. Redeem every second of it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say this morning or afternoon, as I would any time, please, you get you, your, this routine. Please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. I know sooner or later you'll just be able to say that with me. Uh, nonetheless, uh, so let me try to put things into context. By the way, there's a couple of things you might not get out of this. Um, first of all, do you realize that uh, what we're at is, is, well, we know this, first of all, that, that Abram was born, or at least let me say his father, Terah, became a father 452 years after the flood. That puts us somewhere now, right at about 2,000 years after creation. Now, the reason I say that is you might not realize this, but we're in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, and we're halfway, chronologically, we're halfway through the Old Testament. Are you aware of that? Because the last 2,000 years have been, have been basically ascribed to the first 12 chapters. And from chapter 12 all the way through to Malachi are going to be the next 2,000 years until Jesus sets foot on earth as Jesus. And so I'd like you to start with the idea that God has already given us how important these next 2,000 years are going to be just by the amount of press he gives compared to where he started. Now, in all of that, there is this man. Once upon a time, there was this man, 452 years after the flood, who became a dad. His name is Terah. He has three sons. Of those three sons, one's name is Haran. And Haran means mountain man. And then we have, and he has a son, by the way. Who's mountain man's son? Does anyone remember what his name is? Lot. Very good. His, his son's name is Lot. And then we have this other guy. His name is Nahor. And what does his name mean? Snorter. Excellent. He means snorter. Yeah, that was it's a terrible clue, isn't it? Okay. And he has another son, and his other son's name is Abram, right, or exalted father. Now, ironically, of the three, the one guy who seems to be having no children is blessed father. She wouldn't have seen that coming. Now, on the other side of it, we do know this as we kind of dig into this text, that in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, in his last chapter, as Joshua sort of gives his parashah, the history of Israel to that point, that he tells us that this man, Terah, was an idol worshiper. They came from Ur of the Chaldeans, so the sort of that Sumerian culture basin down here, and he was, a, he was an idol worshiper. And, and, and I love the fact that God didn't look and see a perfect home in a very stable environment where everything was beautiful and there were praise hymns in the background. Maranatha 14 was playing, stained glass windows. And, you know, it was sort of like I had like lighthouses, and, you know, and Kincaid paintings on my walls. And God said, well, clearly that's a house I'm going to call someone. It just was a house that was as much of a mess as any other house there. And, and with that, God calls this man out of obscurity who all we know is he's basically a 75-year-old guy. He's with his dad. And according to Stephen's, you know, Perashad, Stephen is a guy from the New Testament in Acts chapter 7. He tells us that God called him when he was down in that culture basin. And when he was down in that culture basin, God said, leave your dad, leave your stuff, leave everything else behind and follow me. I'm not going to tell you where yet, because if I did, you would, well, I'm developing this a little bit more than God would in that. If I did, you wouldn't even ask me until you took the steps I already told you what they were. And I'm going to tell you one. Follow me. I'll tell you the next step when you obey with that one. And, and with that, Abram, well, he sort of obeys, doesn't he? I mean, because what we read is he takes dad with him 
and he takes then this other brother, remember his, his, his son, which is then Abram's nephew, because his, his dad had died. He takes a lot with him. And, 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 but he also takes, according to these verses, notice he takes more than just a lot. He takes a lot besides a lot. I mean, he takes a lot, this nephew, but then he also takes all of these possessions and all of these people. And he goes up to Haran. And by the way, it's interesting, because ultimately God's going to give him land over here, but he takes this big loop, and we find that that's dad's thing. Now, now the question is, why would you take dad with you? Now, the inevitable thought is if we're touchy-feely and we've been raised on Hallmark cards, it's pretty likely that the reason is is because we will assume that, well, we've got to take care of dad because he's kind of getting older. But I want to remind you, one of the brothers, the other brother was left back down here, who ultimately, by the way, will make his way up to Haram. Because that other brother, remember, Snorter, marries a girl named Milka. Does anyone remember what Milka's name means? Queenie, excellent, means queenie. But this is what you might find interesting. And, and, and just to kind of really lay out how long this thing plays out, they have, so you've got this brother, Snorter and Queenie, and they have a son, and his son's name is Bethuel, and Bethuel has two children. Now, Bethuel's two children, for what it's worth, is a girl named Rebecca and a boy named Laban. Does those sound familiar? They are Snorter's grandkids. Do you get that? Are you following me on this? And if they're Snorter's grandkids, this is the important thing. This guy, Abram, who's going to be over here, Abram, is going to have a son, Isaac, who's going to have another son, Jacob. And Jacob is going to, if you remember, flee, and he's going to marry Laban's girl. And when he dies, remember, actually, he marries two of them, because Laban's the classic rip-off artist. He's the only one who rips off a guy named Rip-Off more than Rip-Off. And when he dies, these, remember, they flee. Do you remember what they flee with? They flee with the household idols. Do you remember that? Interesting, though, they call the guy, though, at that point, a Syrian. That means he made his way up here. So somewhere in it, because they have to head up to Haran, they're going to come up here, but that whole household idol thing was still happening two generations later. And they're going to steal all these teraphim, and you can see them going, oh, wait a minute, so there's a problem. And the only reason I say that is, is when God calls this guy to say, get out of all that, that's a whole lot to leave. But it's exactly the journey every one of us are on, whether we know it or not, because it is a journey of discovery. Now, not a journey of discovery in the sense of, hey, I just want to get to know me a little bit better. Now, if you're that kind of person, I want to warn you, if you ask God to show you who you really are, grab a... This is maybe not a self-esteem moment. Grab a barf bag and then thank God for the fact that who you really are is still loved by God because the beauty is we really are ruins and wretches outside of the love of Jesus Christ. And that's a really healthy view. We're too busy dolling up a corpse instead of saying, God, I just want to give you this. I'm not going to doll it. I'm not going to pretend it's what it isn't. I'm going to give it to you exactly as Scripture says, and I'm going to let you reinvent me because when you reinvent me, you make something beautiful out of something horrible. And I'm okay with that, because if I'm any other mindset about myself, I'll try to pick up a guy that doesn't belong there, and I'm going to really ruin a situation. It's kind of like at this moment, God's really making a beautiful little thing, and then I'm going to add, well, I'm going to add a little bit of old me in it. And God's like, I really don't need a dead part of the body in this new thing. Now, hear me out. <laughs> and and this, again, I don't want to develop too much because, well, first of all, we started late, but second of all, because we have so much beautiful text to dig into. But in all of this, there are four basic gods, again, in every one of these cultures. There's a god of production or of purpose, in essence. I mean, you know, a god where it's like, hey, because babies, having babies is such a, a bizarre, out-of-the-ordinary thing, you kind of, people just 
Try to find a god for it. And the Sumerians had their god just like anyone else did, um, for what it's worth, Ninersag. And then um, with that, but then there were also gods of provision. You know, I, I remember we're an agrarian culture, and being an agrarian culture, what we're looking for is, I mean, we need rain, and we need, I mean, things that grow. That's kind of a transcending thing, too, and I can't really kind of put it on my finger. I can't control it. And basically, anything that I can't control, people make a god out of. You, you kind of get that. And so there were gods that people worshipped in regards to provision. And, and, and by the way, that's going to be the same as well when it comes to the Sumerian culture. But his guy, for, the, for instance, Anu, who's this guy, God, for whatever it's worth. Uh, but then there will also be gods of protection because that is another area I can't pr- control. I mean, that's why people are so freaked out in Camden today. Because some guy got stabbed and there people are thinking, man, that could have been me. Because whether we like it or not, I mean, people, we buy all kinds of things. Sprays and rattles and things and buzzers and, you know, stuff. And then we feel a little bit better and we walk around with our keys in our hands and we take self-defense classes. But in the end of it all, let's be honest, if it weren't be for the protection of somebody that was completely, has knowledge of everything around us, we're really all in a lot of danger. And then, by the way, the Sumerians had that too, for what it's worth. And the... And then ultimately, there's a God of pleasure. And by the way, it is important to recognize that because Abram had terrible counterfeits of the true and living God in his household before he left, Abram has, he has to go through this cleansing process like any one of us would have to. And please hear me out on all of this. You don't have to have an idol up for it to be an idol. I mean, you don't have to have something that you bow down to, you light incense to, that you do a little dance in front of. The bottom line is, let me ask you, what about you? What is it that gives you purpose today? I mean, what is it that gives you your identity? I'm a carpenter. I'm a what? That your job? It's your social strategy, your education, your boy or girl, your race? I mean, it is amazing how many of those things, and they do play into who we are. I mean, in fact, if I, again, we talked about it last week. If I were to say, if you're going to give me two answers, what is your name and who are you? What were your, would be your immediate answers? Okay, my name is blah, 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 and I'm a, what, I'm a student, I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a, I mean, what is it that you put into that space? Because understand, with every one of us, what the Lord wants us to do, really, we're watching a guy do in front of us what, really, he's got us all on. I mean, there was a moment where the Lord said, follow me. I want you. I want you. And because I want you, I want to pull you out of everything you came from and reinvent you from the ground up, from the foundation up. And what happens, like Abram is, we go... Perfect, let me go pack. And God says, what do you mean pack? I'm going to reinvent you. And you're going, but no, these are good things. And God said, no, they're not. They just look like good things. Because to be honest, if you'll pardon me for saying, they're just the best thing you've had to this point. And you will settle for that. Until you, listen, until you recognize God doesn't want to just be the one who gives you these things. He wants to be the one who is these things. A revolutionary fact in my whole life was when I realized in John that Jesus wasn't the I give, he's the I am. I'm like, God, give me light. Jesus is like, I want to be that light. Hello? God, give me life. Jesus is like, I am that life. And you go, wow, wait a minute. That really changes everything. Well, for what it's worth, again, in the book of Genesis, about a quarter of it given to this man, Abram, that... There are going to be four altars built. And each one of them, if you will, they seem to be landmark moments in Abram's life where he has to discover, well, wait a minute. I've concluded you really are that. 
We've already walked through one of those, and the whole point was simple, that Abram, God calls this guy Abram, and, and, and with all of that, he says, all right, I want you to leave all of this behind, and be, and, but yet he takes so much with him that he wasn't supposed to take with him. And again, I wonder, what would it be like if he didn't take Lot with him? I mean, would Lot still have his wife by the end of his life? You know, and, Because it was in taking him that he takes him to this place where Lot will ultimately jump down into the Sodom area, and, and, you know, into this rich and lush Jordan Valley, but it's a wicked and horrible place. And if he had stayed at Ur, Lot would never have had that. Now, I, that, I don't know what would, I mean, would Lot be the next guy God would have called out? Would it have been like, in part two, the sequel, God calls Lot out of war? We don't know. But I wonder what it's like when you drag someone with, they don't, they don't belong. And, and, and no, this pardon me for this, but what happens is Abram is on this beautiful journey, and he's made this one, and God says, no, look it, we've gotten this far. And it, it took the old man to die for Abram to actually finally do at least a little bit more of what God called him to. And, and I can see that in my own life that God's like, that old man's going to have to die if you're really going to follow me. And, and I realize in every one of our lives, mine's, at least I can tell you, because the one I know the best, that guy really needs to die if I'm really going to follow him with abandon. Or I'll be telling God, you know what, here's my agenda, and this is what I really want from you, and I can't wait for you to fulfill my will be done. And how horrible, of, how do I call him Lord and still give him my agenda? Now, in this, God gets to this point where he gets Abram alone, and he says, now look it, this land that you see around you, I'm going to give to your children. And Abram goes, oh, I know who you are. You're the God of production." You're the God that gives babies. That's a really cool thing. And so an altar is built. You've given purpose. Now, if, and I love the order God puts this in, because to be honest, if I don't recognize that he's going to be my identity and he's going to be my reason for living, then the rest of him become very warped. And he's on the road now. Now, follow this, because you can miss this if you read quickly. And by the way, for what it's worth... When God gave that call in the beginning of, of Genesis 12, all four of those things were listed out. I mean, for what it's worth, he said, I'll make you a great nation. And the whole idea of that is I'm going to make you a very productive person. I'm the one who will make you fruitful. Second is I'll make your name great. And that's the idea, by the way, of provision. Third, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And there I am showing myself to be the God of protection. And then finally, I'll bless you. I'm the God of pleasure. Now, the problem is, is that when I think pleasure, I immediately go to this perverted place. Isn't that sad? That a word like pleasure is instantly ascribed with sin when God himself, we read in, in Psalm 16 that in his presence is the fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I start to think, wow, that's a little bizarre unless I realize pleasure must be something a lot more than what I've defined. And, and yet in all of that, God's like, look at by the time we are done with this journey, you are going to conclude, I am everything you need. And until that point, there's going to be this bizarre chase between who you're trying to make your life to be and what it should be in me. And I realize in my whole life, that's the story of my whole life, are these moments where I'm like, wait a minute, God, you really, this should be you. That's something I'm making up and convoluted and... And then I get to verse 8. Now, again, we've, con we've concluded up to this point, God, you're my purpose. You're my purpose for living. You're the one who makes me fruitful. But in verse 8, we read that he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And here's our second altar. And this second altar, for what it's worth... 
In verse 4, he departed. Verse 5, he departed. Verse 6, he passed through. Verse 8, he moved. And in verse 9, he journeyed. The guy's on the move. We get that about him. And I realize, if we were to take only the best of Abram, Abram's greatest hits, I'd say it sort of boils down to two things. It boils down to the pilgrimage and the person, the tent and the altar, the sojourning and the sacrifice. And I realize, you know what? Okay, if I could just learn from that, I could probably sit and ruminate on that for long enough. My whole life could change if I really thought about that. I mean, one thing was is that he was a man of the tent, which tells me my relationship with the world around me. Blessed is the man whose strength is in the Lord, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. And I get the idea that when Abram looked around, he just realized he will never be really from here. And I think, man, can I walk that kind of walk where my whole life is set? Now, it helps when you don't make enough, and I'm not complaining by any means, to buy a house. Praise the Lord. You know, be like, oh, you rent. Well, you're here temporarily. Well, we're all here temporarily, just some of us a little longer than others. But what we've learned in the last few days is some people aren't here very long at all. But he was also a man of the altar. And he was a man of, of the sojourn, but he was also a man of the sacrifice. And I realized this is the way he looked across. This is the way he looked at the world. It's through a tent. And this is the way he looked at God, through an, through an altar. What a glorious thing amidst, all, amidst a very human person. But please follow me on this for a moment. Because I want to read this slowly with you. Because we read it as if sort of, well, we call these terms in, in music passing tones, where it's sort of like a note that just gets you to the next thing. Look at what it says in verse 8. He moved again from there to the mountain of Bethel, and he pitched his tent <clears throat> with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. And again, that term for altar, again, is this term that means sacrifice, a place of sacrifice. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 9, this is what you could read quickly. Abram journeyed, still going toward the south. Now, you might not miss, you might easily miss this, but in verse 9, we see a difference. You see, the verse before that, he had moved to a place and he stopped and he built an altar. Before that, he had moved to another place and he had stopped and built an altar. In verse 9, what God says is, well, he moved from that spot. And is there a part of you that goes, and he builds an altar. Uh, but we don't have that here. Now, I, I might I just suggest to you, and again, please don't just believe me. Search the scripture out and you tell me what the Lord shows you. But, but what I see in this, and it's, it, it, to me it's profound, is that verse 10 becomes a result of verse 9. And verse 10 then, in essence, becomes the impetus of choice, a place to put you in crisis. In verse 9, the guy moves. Now, we don't read that God told him to at this point. Remember, he got to this one place, he built this altar, and God says, hey, look, I'm going to give you all of this. Your kids are going to get all of this. Now, which one of us doesn't want to go, well, cool, can I just build a place here? The only place that this guy's going to own is going to be his gravesite, a, a, a cave in Machpelah, for what it's worth. But here he's like, okay, look, I'm going to give you this land. And he goes, cool, this is nice. All right, going to go. And he moves from there. Now, we don't read it's a sin or not. I'm not going to build on that. But the point is it's somewhere down the line he moves farther south. And as he moves farther south, he's just moving now. But there's no altar now. And then we read in verse 10 that there was a famine in the land. Now, figure this out. What a famine is. Now, understand, a famine is a whole lot more than just no food. It isn't like you, oh, man, I only get, oh, do I have to eat that whole grain bread at the store because they're out of everything else? I mean, the truth be told, famine is a whole lot more than just, 
a lack of options. I mean, remember, we're in an agrarian culture. A famine is a, is a financial collapse among the people. It is a place where we find ourselves now looking, going, how are we going to survive? They're in a place of great hunger. Now, understand, a famine is going to either bring me, I'm going to, I can't stay here. I'll starve to death I'm here. So it's either going to bring me back to the altar or it's going to bring me down to Egypt. And the problem is, that what we see in Abram's life, like much of ours, is that Abram has a lot to learn, just like me. And there was moments in my life where something happens and I find myself in need of some form of provision, whatever it is. Now, you can put yourself in that situation to decide. I'm lonely, I need a spouse. I, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm in a place where I've, I'm just swimming around and I really need some form of purpose. You know, I really, I'm, a, I'm a missionary and I really need funding or whatever it is. You know, my car's breaking down and I need a new this or, or whatever. But all of a sudden you find yourself and you're like, you know what? I'm in a place, but, but there's more than that. There's a hunger inside of me and that hunger inside of me is not getting fed at this moment. What am I going to do? And you talk to people that are in this place where it's like, you know, I'm hungry. There's something inside of me gnawing away at me. And you know that the world is advertising. This will satisfy. This will satisfy. This will satisfy. And it's constantly in the back of your head doing so. And all you have to do is put on the song, turn on the TV, sit upon someplace where you're going to watch it in the movie. And you're going to go, and it's going to feed that. Ooh, that's it. There's always that option. There's always that option. And the Lord says, the reason you're in this is because you stop hanging out at the altar. Because at the altar, it's total satisfaction. And it's amazing to me how I'm like a guppy because I go away from that and I've completely forgotten that I was satisfied there. And now I'm going, ooh, I'm hungry, ooh, I'm hungry, ooh, I'm hungry. I don't even know what it is. I'm restless and I'm nervous and I'm hungry. And I, I just, something's got to be met and it's not getting met. Ooh, there's that shiny. And I forget that the altar was the last time I wasn't hungry. And it's a great question to ask when someone goes, you know, I'm really restless. I'm really, there's something eating away at me. I don't know what it is. I feel suffocated and I feel like I just, I, I, there's just something missing in my life. And the great question to ask is, well, when was the last time you didn't feel this way? And if you were to sit down with Abram at this moment and say, when was the last time you weren't in a famine? I wonder if Abram would have been able to tell you, you know, there was that time when I was back at the altar. Now, understand, at the altar, you slaughtered an animal and you ate it. I mean, you can't be too hungry unless you're a vegetarian. You can't be too hungry there. And, and I just think it's really interesting that Abram kind of gets in this situation where he's hungry at this moment, and he leaves, and he goes farther south. It's interesting because he went south to a famine. Now, the word south, for what it's worth, is the word Negev, which, by the way, a good portion of Israel is a desert, which is where he went. Now, I find it interesting he wasn't, I mean, this place of, between Ai and Bethel is not a place of desert, but he went from there into the Negev. He went into the desert, and strange as it is, there was a famine there. Wow, this is a dry place. Not a lot of food grows here. Yeah, that's the way that works. Now, let me ask you, can we be honest enough with each other to say, well, are you in that place today? That place where you realize life's really dry? You're just not satisfied? Do you ever remember a time when you were? Because we don't read there was a famine at that altar. But once he went south, there was. So what does he do? He goes further south. And isn't that classic? Isn't we do that? We're already heading towards the world anyways. And the more we head towards the world, the more empty we feel. And then that makes us rush harder into the world, thinking that somehow I have to try harder to get it there. 
But the farther we go, it's like the farther we go from the faucet, the thirstier we get. And now here we are in this place where we're going, oh, but now we've got another problem. And this has never been a problem up to this point. I married a fine woman. And that's always been a good thing until now. Verse 11, it says, It came to pass as they were entering Egypt, or they were close to it, that he turns to his wife. And I remind you, what does her name mean again? Contentious argues a lot, the kind of idea. And he turns to this gal, and he butters her up a little bit. He goes like, look at me. You fine. You a fine woman. Thank you. But that's a problem. You see, traditionally, in every culture in the Middle East, there is an adultery law. Now, I find this interesting. As we started doing some of these reports and investigation on adultery, which, by the way, for those of you who are my internet um, accountability, you're going to see stuff in my checking up on adultery laws. Um, <coughs> in the Code of Hammurabi, that's in the 1700s BC, which is like a set of standards. By the way, things were introduced like insurance through the Code of Hammurabi. Uh, is, by the way, it's part of that Sumerian culture. They will say that if, a, uh, by the way, in, in their particular culture, adultery, by the way, was only with a, was only the woman. I don't know if you realize that. I mean, the man could go and marry as many as he wanted. But the woman, on the other hand, she had to be faithful. And if she was found with another man, they'd tie the two of them together and throw them in the river to drown. Now, the only one that could save them was the husband. But in order for him to save his wife, he actually had to let the lover go free, too. That was according to the law of Hammurabi. But the point was, is that adultery was a capital offense. By the way, did you realize that amongst the English common law, adultery was a felony? That's probably not that anymore. In the Jewel Dynasty, which, by the way, works its way right about the 1000 BC, about the time that David is on the throne. It'll say that a a couple were found, and by the way, in their particular case, there was both men and women could either be found as an adulterer. The man was castrated, the woman was banished. That would have been a time to be a woman. Anyway, so... Uh, with all of that, and again, I don't want to get gross. The whole point of it is, is that in every culture, and by the way, Egyptians didn't have a, a written code like that. And they, they had, it's hard for them to find what were the laws unless they find legal transcripts. And they find among legal transcripts that it was a capital offense to commit adultery. Now, here's the point. If you've got a law and you really don't necessarily agree with it, either you don't enforce it, which is classic canon, or... Um, or you know, I shouldn't say it that way. It's the common world because we all want to do. We all want to break the law and not get caught for it. Uh, but the other thing is, is that or you'll find a loophole. And here's the loophole. Okay, so this gal, she's fine and she's married. But if we kill her husband, then she's coincidentally not married anymore, and she's open game. And and Abram knows that. He knows that sort of the law of the land. So he looks at this gal and he says, "Now listen, honey, you're fine. Now if you were ugly, we wouldn't have this problem. But because you're cute." <laughs> We've got an issue, and the issue is we're going to walk into this place. Now, I wanted you to recognize something for what it's worth, that this particular individual is not traveling small. Remember, when he was up in Haran back in Syria, he had an awful lot of stuff already, and he's packing heavy. And so this guy is sort of, to be honest, by this point, it's most likely that there were more people traveling with him than came in the town we came from in California. And, I mean, this is a small village or a small city traveling now, I mean, what would that be like? I mean, it's like, can we have a table for 1,015, please? I mean, you know, how do you phone ahead for that? And, and so he shows up because, but listen, you need to know this, honey. They're going to kill me, so I need you to cover for me. I need you to lie. And I've heard someone say, 
half-truth is still a full-blown lie. Now, in Genesis 20, what we'll find out is she is, by the way, kind of his half-sister or step-sister. I'm not really sure how that stuff works. She's the daughter of his father, but not of his mom. And we all kind of go, uh-huh. but just the same. But the point is, is that he's still deceiving, and deceiving is a lie. That's the point. He's just like, look at what I, I don't want them to think I'm married to you. Now, which one of you thinks that the buttering up of you fine is enough when the guy says, but so don't let anyone know that I'm married to you. But it gets almost humorous here for a second because what happens is the guy comes in and she seems to comply with this. And so listen to this. Verse 13, say that you're my sister, that it'll be well with me for your sake, that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman. She was very beautiful, by the way. I mean, this gal at this point, she could be wearing dentures, but she's still fine. And whatever she was doing, man, I just want you to know this is what we might call PB, which is pre-Botox. I mean, this was a time when this girl was just fine without any of that stuff. This was before Revlon, you know. This was before you could take it or take it or tuck it or suck it or whatever. But she was just, she was fine. And the princes of Pharaoh commended her. And this tells me something, which means this girl was so fine. Now, look at A prince gets decapitated if he does something that annoys a pharaoh. So think about that. That's a tough job. I mean, you better know your pharaoh pretty well. So if you go, there's this fine girl, and she comes in, and she kind of looks like a pizza, it's off with your head. I mean, consider that. And so for the, for the princess to come in, she's really got to be a hot item. And they go, pharaoh, this girl's good looking. Now, please understand, every, every leader, every political leader, basically has their trophies to try to make sure that you recognize their kingdom's the coolest. I mean, it happens to this day. We try to keep, well, here are the people we associate with. This guy did come to my wedding. This guy didn't come to my wedding. These are the people that are my close friends. These are the things we've amassed. Look at, look at how we've conquered this place. This place is a subjugation to us. I mean, all of this stuff basically goes, check us out. We're cool. And it's the same thing that we all do anyways. It just happens to be political, which all that means is it's just you now in some form of conspiracy with other people. I mean, you know, I really want you to like me, so let me get more stuff, conquer more cities, and do this other stuff, and put all this stuff in front of me. Well, what do you do, you know, 4,000 years ago? What you do is, you find the hottest girls, and you put them all in your palace. That's one of the things you do. Now, the idea of it's quite simple. And I mean, I'm not trying to be crude, I'm just trying to be real. So that if you were to come and visit, and you were a dignitary for somewhere else, you were a Syrophoenician, and you were to come to visit the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh would be like, and out they all come, Right? I'm not even going to do that because I don't want to create an image in your mind that you'll need to, you know, listerine your brain for. But, <coughs> but the idea is people look and go, ooh. Now, listen, that plays out for quite a while. Remember when the Queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon? Remember how he prays all that stuff? And she goes, man. And what seems to be amazing is she looks and she goes, she sees the way the servants are being treated. She goes, this is a really great household. Later on, if you remember with Hezekiah. He'll do the same thing. Now, at this phase, the Babylonian envoys come in, and he's like, let me show you all my stuff. Check me out. Like me, like me, like me. And the whole idea of it is, look at all my stuff. Our kingdom's cool, right? Right? I'm a cool guy. We're, we're legit, right? And, and you understand, that kind of stuff pervades, and it pervades to this day. To be honest, if we were honest with ourselves, if we were such a person, we'd probably do the same thing. To be honest, we do the same thing. When you meet someone you don't know, and you try to look through your own life, and you're like, what trophies that I've amassed are appropriate to get you to like me? You know, oh, you're smart. Can I tell you how educated I am? Let me try to use a polysyllabic word. Cafeteria. Now you like me, right? I mean, whatever. And it's like you realize, whatever it is, oh, you're a sports person. You know, by the way, one day I happened to meet Michael Jordan. You know, whatever. And people are, oh, by the way, I don't, I have nothing to do with basketball. Oh, okay. 
What is it? You know, horse, you know, horse racing. I knew a guy once that was really thin. I think he rode a horse. I mean, we're trying to do something to get people to like us. Well, he goes down there. But I'd like you to consider what it would be like. Follow me on this for a second. Because this is what it says. It is a bit humorous, but it is a bit unnerving if you were her. Abram came to Egypt, verse 14. The woman saw that she was beautiful. This is the princes of Pharaoh commended her. Verse 16, he treated Abram well for her sake. Why would he do that? Well, if he's just her brother, he's buying her. I'd like you to think about that. And this is the culture. So, here we are, sweetheart. You're fine. People are going to look and go, who who, who is that? You're welcome. But they're going to kill me. I need your help. Just telling me, my sister, and we're going to live through this together, apart, but together. Right? <laughs> and you're like, okay. So we walk in, and he's like, this is my, this is my sister. And I'm like, oh, well, come with us. And off she goes. She peeks out a window, and there I am. And Pharaoh's like, bring in the camels. Bring in the, the donkeys. And you can see her looking going, oh, no. Wait, think about what that means. That means, you know, it, it's, at that point, what happened is that Sarah just got bought. Now, a good news is she seemed like she got bought for a hefty price. I mean, she was fine, right? But let's face it. How many camels before you really feel okay with it? There aren't enough camels in the world. And we've had that. People have offered camels for my wife. <laughs> we've been in Israel before. Beautiful woman, strong arms. How much? You ain't got enough, baby. <laughs> hey, look at my wife is so valuable. Only one person in the world could afford her. And that wasn't me. That was God, and it cost him everything. So uh, with that in mind, but what would it be like for her? She watches at this point, and what she watches is this guy collect all this stuff, and she's thinking, it's over. We're done. You know what the saddest part is? Even after all of this, he's going to do this again later. Some lessons, you just don't learn that quick. This would have been a really good one. Now, imagine if the guy was about to do a marriage seminar and this popped into it, you know? You really want to make your wife know that she's really special. So talk him up on the camels. Now, here's the good news. Ladies, God knows how to cover you, even when your husband's an idiot. And I'm not saying this because there's any domestic strife between my wife and I until this particular moment we talked about camel. <coughs> Listen, he knows how to step in. Unfortunately, often God will step in in spite of you. You don't have to be a guy for God to do that. By the way, this is the first mention of Egypt in Scripture. It is also the first mention of plagues. Man, I mean, there's sooner or later, you just, if you're an Egyptian, you just got to be like, I don't want anything to do with those people. It says in verse 17 that the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Not little plagues, not medium-sized plagues, great plagues. Now, we don't even know what those are. I can tell you in Genesis 20, when he pulls this trick the second time, that God will close the womb of everyone in Abimelech's house. Now, how long does it take before you figure that out? Here, they're just great plagues. Their life is miserable, and Pharaoh finally wises up. Your sin will find you out. And he says, why did you lie to me like that? What's interesting, it doesn't say that Abram has an awful lot of opportunity to defend himself. Have you noticed that? 
By the way, there's another lesson Abram's going to have to learn in all this, and that is that God is your protector. That'll be his third part of his journey. We'll get there next week. But this is what he says. Get out of here. So why doesn't he take his stuff back? Because it is a shame. Abram has been shamed. He's been shamed because at this point, he's like, look at it. I'm not even going to give you the pleasure of feeling like I'm going to take your stuff back and we're going to go back to the way you started. You're just going to take it with you. What's interesting is that Abram's going to go out richer than he was before. But he did it in such a terrible way. He's going to take it in. It's not going to be. Have you ever gotten anything and then by the time you got it, it just wasn't worth it? Because the way that you got it was it just kind of attached to the victory on it was something that you did that was just shameful and you look and go, this just isn't worth it anymore. But what's even worse than that is he has a, a wife whose name, by the way, I remind you, is contentious that he gets back into the household now that he gets to go back with. And I wonder what the relationship is like from this point on. But you know what's really cool? God never called her his sister. Seven times in this chapter, he will call her his wife. Did I happen to mention it's his wife? By the way, and said I, Abram's wife. No matter what game Abram's playing, I'm not changing my mind. And let me just say this as we get close to wrapping this around. Look, it doesn't matter whether if the entire world took a vote on something. God's not changing his mind. Because God's not in a state of evolution. He's not kind of figuring things out as he goes along. He knows everything from the start with. <laughs> We're the ones catching up with him. So you're like, well, you don't understand. The Bible's a little outdated because in this particular culture, this is the way we think. It's like you should study the cultures 2,000 years ago. They're no, you're no better off than they were then. They're just as wicked, just as self-centered, just as self-serving, just as sinful. And God says, this stuff kills you. It will kill you in any culture. Drugs kill. That's just the way it is. It's like God's like, look it. Sex outside of marriage will kill you in more ways than one. That's just the way it is. Adultery is going to kill you. It tells us that divorce covers you in violence, according to Malachi. God looks at all of this. And understand, I'm not here to pick on anyone. The point is, is the what choices do we make from this point on? Because look at me, I don't have to take a vote with you guys. God's like, I know everything. You're not going to inform me on anything. Now, he's not proud to say that. He's just honest. Abram, she's still your wife. And what's beautiful about it, after all the compromises, Abram's going to kind of toss out at the end of it all, when the dust clears and he's running out of options, or he's run out of options, and he's 99, God looks at me and goes, now can we get back to what we started with 24 years ago? You and your wife. That's the way we play this. I haven't changed my mind. And you know what I found really interesting is when the Bible makes something really simple and we try to complicate it, and people are like, well, I really think that all doesn't mean all, and I really think that this doesn't mean this. And we kind of make it, we flower it, and we do this really silly stuff with it, and we do the smoke and mirrors. And then the end of it all, then the whole thing comes to pass, and you go, wow, actually, I guess it's kind of just like it said. And you realize, God made it simple because he knows who he's dealing with. Does that make sense? I love that about him. He looks and he goes, let me not shoot over your head with this. This is important. Now, in the end of it all, he lives with his wife, verse 20, and all that he had. Verse thir chapter 13, last four verses, or first four verses, but the last four for us today. Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot, through the desert again, by the way. 
So he's going to go back the way he came. And I think that God does this often with me. I don't know about you, but he does it where he takes me back to this place where I was dry again. Because this was the place where I made a really bad choice. And to be honest, this is a retake, is the way that this looks. This was a test. I failed it. I went to the world to get something that, by the way, in the end of it all, didn't satisfy. What I did as a result of that is I almost destroyed my family. And and the bottom line was what I really needed, God, was for you to provide. And you were the last person I went to. There nowhere, by the way, do we read anywhere in this, while he was in Egypt, that God had any form of conversation with Abram. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, is the only person that God seems to be dealing with here, or mucking with, if you will, is Pharaoh. So there's a whole place where Abram's kind of alone, not dealing with God, but he's got a lot of donkeys, including himself at the moment. And he goes back. Comes back with his wife. That's grace, by the way. Pharaoh could have easily, at this moment, killed Abram. And actually, he would have had a legal right to do so. Because it's perjury. Anytime you lie to Pharaoh, it's perjury. And it's a capital offense. He could have killed him, taken all of his stuff back, and that could have been it. And by the way, when he would have, then he could have taken Sarai as his own wife, and the thing could have been a closed deal. And I look at this, and I wonder what it would be like to walk out of Egypt at this moment and have to look in the eyes of my wife after that situation and go, oh, let's never do that again. That was really, I was wrong. I was really stupid. And yet, she's like, oh, you haven't read the book. Then you only got eight chapters before this is going to happen again. And, and it's like, but you know, those moments where you're like, come on, I'm serious. I'm, you know, let's not do that again. You know what I have to, you know what I've concluded? The only one who's going to be able to provide for us is the Lord. He's the only one. And what's interesting is next week as we get dig back into this, what we're going to find is that <clears throat> him is going to be, <clears throat> he's going to be so rich. His nephew is going to be so rich. They have to split up. And Abram actually just says, you can just pick whatever you want. I don't even worry about it now. I'm not even going to worry about it. And I can just see the faith of Abram in that moment going, you know what I've resolved is that God's going to have to take care of me. And so Abram, you can just, or Lot, you can just pick whatever you want because God's the one who promised he was going to take care of me anyways. And, and you know what? Lot's going to actually, we find Lot hasn't learned the lesson. He didn't lose a wife there. He'll lose her later. And so he's like, ooh, let's take a look. Let's see, kind of desert, kind of rocky, ooh, lush and floral and fauna and Wow, and nice banana plants. And I'm going there. And you could just see Lot doing what any guy would do at a moment like that. Take what looks on the surface like the best option. And we don't read that Lot argues. We don't read that, I'm sorry, that Abram argues. We don't read that Abram's like, you know what, how about we split that in half? You know, you can have half desert and as well. Because one thing that I think Abram had to conclude here was that God, a desert with you is going to be a lot more fruitful place than a floral place without you. And, and I'm in this place, and I realize, I mean, you know, when people look, and, and you, let's face it, we come to a country where people are like, this is hard ground. Oh, come on. Do you realize the only ground that gets hard is ground that doesn't have any seed planted on it? Now, this is a dark place. Darkness is not the overcomer of light. Darkness is the absence of it. I'm like, it's not a dark place anymore. The light of the world has just stepped in. And it's not just in me. There were a bunch of us that came, and there were other people who represent Christ that aren't in this building that are having services elsewhere. Praise God for them. And then when someone that's in the clergy tells me nobody gets saved, I'm like, well, when was the last time you preached the gospel? Because the gospel is still the power of salvation, and we're watching people come to know the Lord weekly. And I'm like, thank you, Lord. And it doesn't make us anything special other than the fact we're special because we happen to be children of the living God. In this text, there's a point where you realize, well, that's a desert out there. And you're like, you know what? No place is going to be a desert if I'm living with my God. 
He'll take care of me. And whether he'll just pull water out of wherever he needs to or he'll you know, bring ravens to bring me food, the bottom line is he knows how to take care of me. I'm, I'm, I was once young and now I'm old. And I can tell you this. One thing I've learned, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. And, this, and the Psalms tell us no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Now, the good news is he has a right to discern what is a good thing. So you could say, well... King Rolls Royce, that's a good thing. God says, not for you, it isn't. I will not withhold a good thing, and, but I have a right to discern what a good thing is. So finally, verses 3 and 4. He went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel. Remember, south is in the Negev, to the place where he had been in the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made it first, the altar. And he comes back to this place and he goes, okay. You're more than just the God that gives babies. You're more than just the God that gives identity or purpose. You're the God that provides for me. You provide for me for your will. But understand, I have to recognize that I belong to you first. You're the one who guides my life. You are the one who is everything that I need to be. And in regards to my purpose, my, my, my priorities, all of that stuff has to be you. So that when I say you provide all that I need, I recognize that you're the one who determines what I need in the first place. And if I don't reconcile that first, what will happen is I'll say, God, all I need, what I need is a bigger house. And what I need is more of this. And what I need, God's like, look it, you haven't reconciled the first thing yet. Which is that I'm the reason you're alive in the first place. And if, I can, if you can reconcile that, well, then provision won't be as big of an issue. Because you're going to have to trust me with every bit of this. I'm going to call you to something that is so far beyond you, you can't do it. But I can as we go to prayer, I just want to mention one last thing in this. There's one thing I am sure you need. And that is forgiveness. That is purity. That is to be forgiven and set free from the bondage of your sin and the, and the penalty thereof. And that is a cup of desolation and horror according to scripture. A cup of condemnation. And there's only one person in history that's ever taken that cup for me. And it killed him. Temporarily. And God so loved you and he so loved me that the greatest debt, the greatest debt that could ever be paid was paid by one person, God in the flesh, Jesus the Christ, promised for thousands of years prior so that he could come and drink that cup for you, so that he could offer you innocence, instead instead of your guilt. And the beautiful part about it is God has not asked you to earn it, to win it, to strive it. He's asked you to surrender to his offer. I love that. Which, by the way, levels the playing field. We're all faulty. We're all guilty. We're all filthy. Doesn't matter where you started. Doesn't matter where you came from. Doesn't matter your education level, your nationality, whatever. We all start off guilty. And God says, well, good. Now that the playing field is level, the good news is, Because there's only one disease that covers the entire planet, there's one solution. There's one cure for the entire planet. And that one cure is Jesus Christ. And I'm going to send him. He's going to be tempted in every way. He's going to die the death I and you and this mankind deserves so that it can be paid in full and then rise again on the third day to offer us a brand new life on the other side. Have you accepted that gift? Because if you haven't, you're actually still down in order. Because at that point, the Lord drops to a knee and says, will you be mine? Please, will you be mine? I give you this choice. 
And if you're willing to say yes today, God is willing today to lavish you in his love, to cover you in his innocence, and to utterly exhume and eradicate everything that is filthy and wrong in between you and the living God. And in doing so, you can walk in a brand new life today. Today, starting right now. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for your scripture. I thank you for this beautiful journey that Abram is on, Lord. I thank you for the gift of being able to watch you walk with this man and be patient with this man who's constantly taking issues into his own hands, like me. And I recognize right now, Lord God, for every one of us in here, Lord, that you have made it really simple. This isn't something for us to figure out with a magic decoder ring. You've told us we're all guilty. And and to be honest, we recognize that there's no religion in the world that doesn't testify that that we're broken and we need fixing. The issue is who does the fixing. And I recognize, Lord, the biggest, the the most radical difference that separates Jesus from everything else is that everything else demands that we fix it and you respond to see whether it's good enough. And yet, scripturally, Jesus, you've shown me that you are the one who come, who had came and died on the cross, rose again, so that you made the move for me to respond. Because I was dead, I couldn't lift myself out of the grave. Because I was terminally guilty, and I couldn't just not be guilty for a day and try to have that overcome the guilt I've already accrued. But Lord, this is what you call love. complete and utter sacrifice, surrender, to pay the price that you did not owe, that I fully did, to be called fully innocent when you were fully, I'm sorry, to be called fully guilty when you were fully innocent because I am fully guilty and that ultimately in receiving you, I could be called fully innocent. What a radical thought. And so, Lord Jesus, I just pray right now by the power of your Holy Spirit, you speak to every one of us right now and just show us, Lord, show us Convince us of this need. Now let me ask you something, beloved. If the Lord Jesus right now is offering you freedom, innocence, purity, transformation, deliverance, why would you say no to that? I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And instead of having you just simply repeat after me, I'm going to pray a prayer. And what I ask you to do simply, to be honest, is to listen. And in listening to this prayer, the reason I want you to listen is I want you to be able to fully recognize what's being said because at the end of it, I'm going to say, in Jesus' name, and then I'm going to say, amen, and I invite you to say, amen, with me. But by saying, amen, with me, what you are saying is, I agree, let those words be my words, let that prayer be my prayer, so be it in my life. So that's why I don't want you just to sort of repeat after me where you may not even listen to what you're saying. I want you to listen, and if you can agree at the end of it, I ask you to say, amen, I ask you to say, yes, that's my my prayer now. And it goes like this. God in heaven, I confess to you, I am a sinner. I am guilty. My life testifies of a life lived that is not perfect. I also recognize you are a righteous judge. And as a righteous judge, you punish all sin, all crimes. And I believe that you, in your perfect and infinite love, saw fit to send your innocent son, only begotten, the only one equipped, qualified to pay for my guilt other than myself. 
who willingly chose to take upon himself my guilt so that it could be paid in full. And to prove that the debt was paid, he rose again, just like your scripture promised. And after three days having risen again, he offers me a brand new life with him as Lord, with him as my love, as my life, as my light. So I say yes. I say yes to this gift. If you're willing to offer me innocence for my guilt, I say yes. If you're willing to offer me love for my apathy and disinterest and even hatred for you and your law, then I say yes. I ask for you to take me now and I give you permission to reinvent me any way you desire because I recognize you love me and that you want me. So have me now. Make me new. Make me yours. Jesus, be my Lord and my Savior as I surrender myself to you now. Father, this is my act of surrender, confessing your Son is my Lord and as the payment for my sins. So have me now. In Jesus' name. If you're willing to agree, I ask you to say, Amen. Friends, thank you. Thank you so much for the honor of being able to go through the word with you, the privilege of being your pastor. You know I don't take that lightly. It's such a gift. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time today, I would love the honor of speaking with you to encourage you in any way we possibly can, give you whatever tools we can to further you in your walk. Uh, Let's do this. Let's stand and we'll just pray one more prayer and I'll send you guys out of here. And by the way, with that, I still want to get you guys to grab hands with each other and pray that whatever it is that God spoke to you this time, that he would enact it in your life, even as I would mine. But let me just pray before you guys do that. Lord, I just pray now, Lord, for a world that is desperate for new life, for evidence of transformed human beings that know what it's like to be forgiven and loved by their creator, to be lavished with a love that we would be called your children. God, I pray right now that you would fill us with the joy of your presence. Lord, make us bold by your spirit. And Lord, in that, make us such a community, Lord, that the world would say, Whatever's happening there, it's clearly not what we're used to. It's clearly opposite of what we know. And Lord, in that, may we be quick to preach the gospel and quick to give people that option of saying yes to you. So Lord, thank you. And in this journey as we walk with you, Lord, continue to reveal yourself as everything we need from our very purpose to our very provision. You are the portion and our lot and our cup. And we thank you for that. So be blessed, Lord, in our surrender. And may we learn to delight in your delight. In Jesus' name, amen.